1: This
0: is where we live. I'm Lucy nall Nearly 9 out of 10 Americans say they want to die at home rather than in a nursing home or hospital. Where do you turn for help when making the decision to end-of-life care for you or your loved one? Today, Where We Live, we explore palliative care and hospice. Does stigma surrounding death keep us from making plans well in advance of a terminal illness or catastrophic health emergency? Coming up, we'll hear the personal stories of Connecticut residents and talk with a local agency that offers palliative and hospice care. Now, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, Kaiser Health News reported a recent investigation into hospice care in the U.S. To tell us more, on the phone with us now is Melissa Bailey. She's a Boston-based correspondent for Kaiser Health News, Uh, recently co-reported, no one is coming, hospice patients abandoned at death's door. I should say Melissa is also a former manager, editor, and reporter for the New Haven Independent. Melissa, welcome to where we live. It's great to be back, Lucy. Tell us about uh, your story, it begins with the profile of a family, the Martins in Alaska. How did you learn about them and what was their story?
2: So this is one of the families that we came across when we looked at 20,000 records from across the country of hospice inspection reports. And my colleague Janelle Alicia talked to Patricia Martin, who's the wife of Bob Martin, He was a beloved family practice doctor in rural Alaska. He went by the name Dr. Bob. And at the end of his life, he got prostate cancer that spread to his brain, and his wife signed him up for hospice. So while many people think of hospice as a place that you go to die, most people actually get hospice care in the place they already live. So that's what Dr. Martin signed up for. And the hospice in rural Alaska was supposed to be on call 24-7 to give him pain relief and emotional, spiritual support. But when he was moaning in pain and his wife called the hospice, he waited four days to get pain pills. And by that time, he couldn't swallow anymore. So then it took six more days to get liquid painkillers. And his wife, Patricia, was just frustrated to tears about the whole experience. She said it was just a nightmare, and she wishes it would never happen to anyone else.
0: Uh, this is a very troubling story. You mentioned uh, Kaiser Health News investigation looked at twenty thousand government inspection records. How
2: common are these cases, Melissa? So unfortunately, we found similar stories around the country, and not just in rural areas like this one in Alaska, but also in cities. And I mean, it's important to mention that people, most people, are satisfied with hospice. But when we looked at a national survey. We found that one in five families said that hospice did not always show up when they needed help. And when we looked through these inspection records, what we did is we zeroed in on 3,200 validated citizen complaints against hospices. So these are complaints where the inspectors actually followed up and found something wrong. And we found that the complaints led investigators to uncover problems at 759 hospices in the past five years, and over half of those hospices were cited by inspectors for missing visits or failure to deliver timely care.
0: You said, you said 759 uh, agencies cited. Out of how many hospice agencies in the U.S., Melissa?
2: So there are over 4,000 uh, hospices, and we, um, in our, in that five-year period, there were 4,400 we found that over half were, were, had some sort of citation, either through routine inspections or through these complaints, which is what the part that we focused on.
0: Coming up, we're going to learn a little bit more about what exactly uh, uh, hospice care and palliative care is. Uh, but you were mentioning in looking at these inspection reports, Melissa, you're talking to us here in Connecticut. Any troubling cases in the state?
2: Yes, yeah, so Connecticut had 34 hospices in business During the five-year period that we looked at, some have since merged or closed. um, And in any state, there are problems uncovered through routine inspections. So in Connecticut, there are about 280 deficiencies cited. So that's different rule rule violations. Um, But we looked at, there were 14 founded complaints, so meaning that investigators verified that there was something wrong had happened. And one of those complaints was in the Hartford area the hospice was actually providing 24-7 crisis care for a dying patient in the patient's home. So this was a case where the staff was on hand trying to help, but the staff ran out of of pain medication and the patient was uh, just reading from the report, quote, restless, moaning, twitching with arms and legs moving for three hours while hospice uh, staff waited for more medication. And then the next night, The hospice nurse accidentally cut the dosage in half on this pain pump of liquid medication and the patient was, quote, agitated, combative, cursing, trying to pull out a urinary urinary catheter all night. So Connecticut inspectors cited that hospice for failing to adequately manage the patient's pain.
0: Now, if someone's listening and is at the point where they're considering hospice for their loved one, if they wanted to find out this kind of information before they make that decision, would they be able to do so easily, Melissa?
2: So all of these inspection reports are public information. Unfortunately, they're not always very easy to, they're not handily available on the web, but you can always ask your state health department for copies of inspection reports related to a given hospice. But one problem for families is that these inspections don't happen very frequently. So you might get a, an inspection report from several years ago, and maybe that hospice is totally cleaned up, or maybe they changed hands. So it, they're, they're not a very reliable source of, of current information.
0: And how often are they
2: inspected by the federal government? So hospice, hospices are inspected by, usually by state inspectors. Who then report to to the federal government. But unlike nursing homes, they're not inspected every year. The frequency of inspections has fluctuated wildly according to available Medicare funding. So some hospices have historically gone years without being inspected, and that's changing now. And by 2018, hospices will have to be inspected once every three years, but that's still not very often.
0: In the case of the martins, uh the wife filed a complaint. What happens when uh complaints are uh, put on you know put forward by families to uh, state um, health departments, or whoever licenses these providers? I mean, what kind of comfort do the martins get
2: so the Martins actually never heard anything back after their complaint until we called them. Um, years later. And she said, you know, she thought she had given up hope that anything would have happened from that complaint. Um, And when we looked at the group of, you know, across the country, um, hospices that had deficiencies cited, so there were uh, over half of the 4,400 hospices had deficiencies. And in that same time period, only 17 hospices were terminated, meaning they were barred from taking federal money. So usually they just have to write up a plan for how they'll do better in the future.
0: This is where we live. On the phone with me, Melissa Bailey, Boston-based correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Uh, she co-reported the story, no one is coming, hospice patients abandoned at death's door. Uh, they, invest, they looked at more than 20,000 government inspection reports. Over the last five years, families have put forth 3,200 complaints about hospice agencies uh, where hospice uh, providers were found to um, not be there for the family uh, at the time that they needed them the most. Uh, why is this happening, Melissa? Does it have to do with staffing or the kind of oversight? It appears that the hospice industry, palliative care industry, has really grown since it was first founded here in Connecticut in the mid-70s.
2: Yeah, it, the industry has just exploded. I mean, in 2014, one of every two people who died in the U.S. used hospice, which on the surface is a wonderful thing. I mean, we want people to have have care and attention at the end of life. Um, But it seems to me that just the regulatory system has not caught up with the growth of the industry. And also, um, a lot of these companies, they just don't have the staff to reach reach patients. So I talked to a former hospice nurse in New Jersey. She was working for a large for-profit chain hospice. And she said when they signed up patients, they would tell them they'd be there 24-7 but in reality, the staff knew that that really wasn't true, that they couldn't make it to the home, especially on weekends, because they just didn't have the staff to get to everyone.
0: And why is that happening? That They don't have the adequate number of people uh, to, because uh, they're signing these care agreements with families. Why not the, the appropriate number of staff members?
2: So this is an industry that's now dominated by for-profits, and two-thirds of, of patients are seen by for-profit hospice companies, and those companies are trying to meet a bottom line. And, and so what we're seeing is really a lot of fraud in the system. So the largest uh, for-profit chain, it's called Vitas, it's owned by the parent company that owns roto uh, And just yesterday, that company agreed to pay $75 million to the federal government to settle a massive fraud case. The hospice was accused of enrolling patients who weren't really dying in order to bring in more Medicare revenue. You mentioned uh,
0: Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, What other uh, plans do they have to tighten inspections of of hospice providers uh, countrywide?
2: So there is a new website called Hospice Compare It doesn't increase the rate of inspection. It doesn't even have inspection reports. But um, right now, it's kind of a skeletal website with just a little bit of information. But starting next year, they will actually have family ratings of hospices. So you can go on and, and try to have some information that would help you compare hospices against each other.
0: And we should mention uh, in these instances where families, uh, the hospice provider they chose um, was did not show up, um, they are st- paid a flat rate from Medicare for each patient. So even if they, they aren't coming to the home, they're still getting paid.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's that's one reason that the industry is really ripe for abuse is that you get paid, regardless of if you visit the home, the, the hospices get paid a daily fee.
0: Uh, your Your story that you co reported for Kaiser Health News came out more than a week ago what's been the response and are there policy changes underway either from the federal level or have you heard from particular states that are looking into uh, ways to help families if they encounter an incident like this
2: so we've heard uh, you know stories from around the country of just more stories like the ones we reported of substandard care. Uh, one woman said she called a hospice fifteen times for help and then gave up and called an ambulance for her mother. Another said the hospice was shorthanded and didn't send enough pain medication. She said her mom, quote, died in agony and fear. Um, so while many people have wonderful experiences on hospice, these stories are showing us that there really are still, new, there are still people who really aren't getting the care they need. And I talked to government watchdogs in the Federal Office of Inspector General And they said they've been calling for stricter oversight of hospice for a decade, and they think there should be different levels of punishment short of just termination, which means you stop funding the hospice entirely, and that can be really disruptive to patients who would lose care. But that kind of change would require legislative change on the federal level.
0: Melissa Bailey is a Boston-based correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Uh, Again, she co-reported the story, no one's coming, hospice patients abandoned at death's door. We'll tweet out a link at where we live. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for doing this investigation. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Did you know hospice care in the U.S. first began here in Connecticut? Coming up, we're going to hear from providers about end of life decisions. What information is important for people to consider? You can join the conversation, too. Tell us about your experience uh, with your family's um, encounters with hospice uh, in their lives. 860 275 7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about end-of-life care. We just heard about a Kaiser Health News investigation that reported on cases involving American families who opted for hospice at home but were not given the care they were promised. Now, the Centers for Disease Control says in 2014 there were 4,000 hospice agencies in the U.S. 60% of them are for-profit providers. How do you decide if hospice or palliative care is right for your family member? Where do you turn when making that decision. What was your experience when a loved one needed hospice? You can join the conversation 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now joining me in studio now is Lisa Bessie. She's a registered nurse, clinical education and quality manager at the Center for Hospice Care Southeast Connecticut. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also with us, Tracy Wodach, Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Services at the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. Tracy, welcome to Where We Live.
1: Thank you so much, Lucy. I want
0: to start with Lisa. First, tell us a little bit about the organization that you work for, Center for Hospice Care, in the southeast part of the state. Yeah, we're in the southeast part of the state. We've actually been around for over 30
3: years. Um, We're a local agency. We're not affiliated with any larger health firms um, serving our communities in southeastern Connecticut doing hospice and palliative care.
0: Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, hospice care in the U.S. started in Connecticut. Can you give us a little history? Sure. It started actually at the Connecticut hospice um, back in
3: the 70s um, and then kind of grew from there. And actually, the Medicare hospice benefit became law in 1982, I believe. We've, so.
0: we've been talking a lot about hospice palliative care. Mm-hmm. Do, t- Tell us the difference between the two. When we say hospice, what do we mean? And palliative care, the same. Okay, Let me start with palliative care.
3: Um, Palliative care is really for someone who's facing uh, an illness that may end their life, but they still want to receive treatment that is potentially curable. So they may still be working, they're up, they're about, um, but they really need some help with palliative care. The whole focus really is on goals, is what is the goal that the patient and their family really want? Do they want to continue curative care? Do they want care that's more restorative to maintain function, or are they really ready to move towards comfort-focused care? With hospice care, um, you can kind of say all Of hospice care is palliative, but not all of palliative care is hospice. So hospice care is really for people who have a prognosis of six months or less if the disease follows its normal course. And they've decided that they're ready to stop any kind of um, curative treatment and really focus on comfort and symptom control.
0: I mentioned Tracy's with us. Tell us about the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. How are you connected to uh, the hospice agencies in the state?
1: Sure. The Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home is a nonprofit member organization that supports, we have 26 of the 30, currently 31 hospice providers in the state. I know you mentioned earlier uh, for profit versus nonprofit nationally. In Connecticut, we are about 75% nonprofit, 25% for profit. And uh, what we do is we, our focus is really to inform, educate, and support our members to help them be successful quality providers uh, following uh, regulatory regulations, both federal and, and state. So we do an awful lot of education, best practice. We provide tools trying to give some standardization. Uh, we heard from the reporter from Kaiser Health
0: News who looked at uh, cases around the country and she had stressed that the majority of um, experience that families have with hospice providers is good, but there are these cases uh, where um, there's uh, you know, neglect um, and uh, families are not promised the care that they receive. What, what was your reaction when you read the story or heard about this? I'll start with uh, Lisa. You know, it's really unfortunate that these
3: are the stories that come to light because there's always going to be bad experiences in any business. If you think about the the tiny, tiny number of complaints versus the total number of people that were served in hospice, it's really a small, small percentage. But absolutely, things happen. Um, I think sometimes families don't really understand what hospice can provide. And unfortunately, because of Medicare, we aren't allowed to be there 24-7 to take care of people. Families really sometimes have to step up and, and help to
1: care for their loved one. Um, Tracy? Yeah, I, there were a couple of statistics that came out. So 3,200 complaints over. Actually, the number of uh, patients, beneficiaries who received care in those five years was 9.4 million. So it's less than a third of a percent, which truly, as Lisa said, things, things may happen. We don't want them to happen. We don't condone them. But we we really do hope that uh, the general public will look at hospice as a more positive outlook than mm-hmm. and and uh, course of treatment than to uh, look at the complaints. There are so many good stories that we can tell you. What I can say is that what many of our agencies face in Connecticut is an is an extremely focused scrutiny by our Department of Public Health to ensure that we are following compliant federal and state regulations, and uh, Melissa mentioned that the surveys by 2018 will be every three years. Well, that law actually went into effect two years ago, two and a half years ago, I believe it was, and as soon as it did, our state Department of Public Health jumped right on it, and they are completely up to date. Every single one of our 31 agencies have been surveyed for their federal recertification survey. And so they're on time. We're already done with the every three years, and now they'll keep us on a three-year cycle. You made a point, Tracy, to stress that in Connecticut,
0: 75% 75 of the providers are nonprofit. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing when we're talking about care.
1: Well, I don't want to say it's a good thing or a bad thing because several of the not, several of the for-profit members are mem- – several of the for-profit providers are members of ours and very actively involved in our policy development, education, excellent providers. So what we can do is really try to touch all of the providers in Connecticut to uh, help all uh, follow proper compliant courses of treatment and, and philosophy. So let's get into the process because um –
0: when you get to that moment, it's highly stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk us through uh, Lisa Bessie again. Uh, she's the clinical education quality manager at the Center for Hospice Care Southeast Connecticut, a registered nurse. Uh, how does this subject get brought up? And what, is, what are some of the challenges for a family to navigate this?
3: I think one of the biggest challenges is that everybody's reluctant to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about the big elephant in the room, which is that the person in the bed is, is facing a terminal illness and they're going to die in a short period of time. So it's really, if the doctor won't bring it up, families should bring it up. Families should be, ta- you know, patients and families should be talking to each other. What do I want? You know, do I want to continue this treatment? So many people think if the doctor says it, I have to do it and that's not necessarily true that you know people have a choice in terms of what their treatment that they want what how they want the rest of their lives to go so talking bringing it up talking to the doctor and if you can't talk to your doctor talk to a nurse talk to somebody else you know people are certainly welcome to call any hospice and just say i need some information about what it is
0: what happens if a family does bring it up to their doctor but the doctor's not there yet
3: <laughs> I think you have to keep going back to what, what are the goals. And really, if, if the, the patient's goals are comfort and symptom control, then that's what everybody should
0: follow. But, you know, that definitely is a hard, hard thing to do sometimes. Tracy, you were smiling when I brought that mm-hmm. up. Is there a tension there between the doctor and the family and trying to figure out what is best
1: for their, their loved one, the patient? I think there can be, and there can be for many ways. Sometimes a a patient has gone to her own physician for many, many years, and there's a trust there, and they they truly have a friendship developed. So it's a difficult time to bring up such a a tough uh, discussion. Um, On the other side, many physicians, when they went through medical school, they really had no training in having conversations about death and dying, which is amazing because one of the sure things in life is that we will all die. And I don't mean to be morbid at all, but it's important to understand what your choices are so that you as an individual can make choices toward how you want to be treated at end of life, and not wait until the doctor says, okay, it's time. Unfortunately, I think what's happened is uh, because we wait so long, and Connecticut actually is ranked last in the country Mm -hmm. in length of stay on hospice. We have the shortest length of stay in hospice throughout the country. And that just equates to last-minute hospice referrals. Mm -hmm. And with that, because we have such last-minute hospice referrals, our patients end up thinking that Hospice is equated to imminent death versus what Lisa said, that you actually qualify with up to six months of a prognosis um, for for uh, terminal illness. And it's it's just we need to bring it up sooner. And we have a great opportunity coming up, if I can mention that. Um, we are I'm working with stakeholders throughout Connecticut on a group called Care Decisions Connecticut, which is uh, led by the Connecticut Hospital Association. We're in collaboration with them. And we're having a Care Decisions Connecticut day on November 14th at Quinnipiac University at the Frank Netter Medical School from 11 am. until 2 pm. And it's all about having conversations. Our keynote speaker, one of our keynote speakers, is NPR's own Colin McEnroe, who will speak about his experiences with his father and as he faced difficult decisions toward the end of life.
0: And we'll tweet out a link to that uh, de- event at where we live. Uh, I wanted to take some calls today. We're talking about hospice care and palliative care. If you have a story that you want to share about how your family uh, navigated uh, this uh, this moment in your life, you can join the conversation. Eight six zero two seven five. Seven two six six. Ellen's calling from New Haven. Ellen, you're on the show.
4: Yeah, hi, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to share a personal experience with hospice. My mom died two weeks ago, and she was diagnosed with a fatal heart condition a week before she died, and she was immediately referred to hospice by the doctors in the hospital who were very caring and very clear about the choices that we faced. And because of that, she left the hospital the same day she arrived in an ambulance. She was on 24-7 um, hospice care with incredibly nurturing, kind women who were clearly really trained, were filling out reports, and met with supervisors on a regular basis in my mom's home. And she died surrounded by people that she loved with as little pain and fear as possible. And we are so grateful to the providers and so grateful to the hospital that hooked us up immediately, Yale and Haven. And I guess my question is, with that said, I heard about really alarming reports about hospice, both in the state and elsewhere. And my question is, how? what kind of policy changes can be made What can listeners do to help ensure that the incredible care that we received is the norm and that I know it saved money for uh, Medicare because my mom wasn't in the hospital for a week. And I know it saved just, it was invaluable to us in terms of being able to have a caring and um, a a death that allowed us to have some sense of closure and peace.
0: Well, thank you, Ellen, for your call, and we're sorry to hear about your mother's passing. I'll let uh, Tracy Wodach uh, answer uh, your question again. She's Vice President of Clinical and Regulatory Services at the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home.
1: Yes, Ellen, thank you so much for bringing your story forward, and and our condolences to you and your family and the loss of your mom. We're so thankful that we uh, were able to provide excellent hospice care to you, and it was referred timely. I guess the answer to the question that you posed really is the groundwork is currently being laid at both the federal government and and um, through uh, initiatives that we're undertaking in Connecticut. The federal government, uh, I think Melissa outlined uh, somewhat the um, the regulatory changes that are going in place and the oversight. There's a lot more um, focus on agencies and survey processes, the complaint investigations to ensure uh, that that hospices are providing good care. Also, there's some more standardization to the documentation and reporting at the federal level. So there will be on hospice compare, although it's a skeleton now. As Lisa, as Melissa reported, it will be robust and it will include quality indicators that all hospice providers are measured equally across. Uh, across the nation, as well as patient satisfaction survey results. So you will see some some better reporting and some better uh, oversight. And I think it was just a matter of time to, to get all of the policies and protocols in place for that to happen. In Connecticut, we actually have a lot of initiatives going on. Um, with our Care Decisions Connecticut group that focuses on having conversations and working with the various uh, providers at the hospitals, physician practices, nursing homes, et cetera, so that they can have conversations early enough and recognize those patients just like your mom and have those those tough conversations early so that the person can be uh, guided through uh, the proper care at end of life. Bob's calling from East Lyme. Bob, you're
0: on the show.
5: Uh hello. Uh, I'm Bob uh, from uh,
0: East Lyme. And tell us about your experience with hospice, Bob. Well, it was uh
5: my uh, was sort of an interesting development. Uh about 5 years ago my mother and father passed away and a hospice in Florida was involved and uh I I found them to be extraordinarily good. Uh then shortly after that my wife was diagnosed with leukemia, which was a about a 5 month uh, run. And uh And then she passed in uh, 2015. Uh, The first thing I got involved with with uh, with the Center for Hospice Care and their help was the working through the seven stages of grief, and uh, and that include group therapy sessions, uh, include individual counseling. Uh, I'd like to just focus on the positive with hospice. uh, in my case, uh, it, her, my wife's death was followed by my first wife's death, uh, and uh, she had passed away three months later, and then a month ago, I lost a daughter. So, uh, I, I'll tell you, without the Center for Hospice Care, I would have been down the toilet. Okay.
0: Now, I'm seeing that you're also a former volunteer for Center for Hospice Care. Tell us about that.
5: Yes, uh, just before my wife was diagnosed uh, with leukemia, I was uh, uh, volunteer for uh, well, just up until recently, and uh, I had the, the thought in my head that the uh, my experience with hospice and sitting with people and uh, uh, providing end of life company and visiting uh, folks and doing veterans' pensions and so forth, uh, I thought that would really help me get ready for uh, what was obviously going to happen in my future, and. Uh, uh, as it turned out, it uh, that's not true. I mean, you're going to feel the, the grief, the shock, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, uh, and uh, and also rebuilding your life. Uh, hospice helped me get through that. That's why I want to really focus on the positive stuff that hospice has done.
0: Well, thank you, Bob, for your call. I'll go to Lisa Bessie, who's with the Center for Hospice Care in Southeast Connecticut. Tell us about the volunteer role and how they're able to help families at this time. Sure. Our volunteers are just wonderful. They do
3: a variety of things. They can, as Bob said, they can sit with um, fam- with patients while their family members maybe go shopping or just take a little bit of a break. Um, we do have volunteers who will sit vigil at the end of life if there's nobody else to sit so the patient's not alone. Um, we also have volunteers who do wonderful complementary therapy. We have massage therapists. We have Reiki therapists. Um, we have healing touch. We have um, a number of pet therapy dogs. So we have little dogs all the way from like a Yorkshire all the way up to an Irish wolfhound. So depending on what size dog someone wants to come visit, they can choose. And um, then we also have volunteers who who help us out in the office.
0: I want to take uh, one more call. Joe from South Windsor.
6: Joe, you're on the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I had a terrific experience with hospice while my wife was dying from cancer four years ago. But I just want to point out that The people who treated my wife prior to arriving at hospice hospice, made the the hospice care job so much more difficult for them. Um, And in the case of cancer patients, I'm afraid that might often be the case because to get a cancer patient to accept chemotherapy... Um, You don't say you might live 26 days longer, you might live six months longer. You have to build the false hope that we can maybe save you, that maybe somebody's going to cure your kind of cancer or we're going to have some kind of drug that's matched to your your genetic makeup. You have to build that false hope if you're going to get someone to poison themselves to the extent that chemo poisons them. And then once you've built all that false hope, hospice that's in the business of helping them die has to be up against all of that denial. And the other family members have to try to navigate their way through both of those processes. I mean, I read everything hospice gave me to read to my wife about end of life, at the end of which she asked me to read it again more slowly and then read it again and tell her what each sentence meant to me, and then read it again and tell her what gave her the best chance of having a near-death experience where she told god no i'm not coming and you're up against that while you're trying to help comfort the patient and and provide palliative care and support while they're inevitably dying Mm -hmm. and and I, I wondered if you could speak to how difficult that is for hospice care workers.
0: Well, thank you, Joe, uh, for sharing your story. I'll go to, to Lisa Bessie. We touched on this a little bit earlier yeah. and about this, uh, you know, trying to figure out this process uh, when there you want to hold on to hope, uh, but you know that your loved one is dying.
3: Yeah, that that's so, so difficult. I think, um, especially in today's medical world where there's been so many advances, there's always you can treat, you can treat, you can treat. And it's... I think always a shock for people when they get to the point where the doctor says, that's it, we can't treat anymore. I think some of the antidote to that is starting to have the conversation earlier, which references back to what Tracy said about, you know, getting physicians and patients and families comfortable with the idea of actually saying what's going on so that it's not a shock when you get to that point. It it certainly is difficult for people, um, you know, patients and families when they come to that point are not always at the same point of acceptance So that's one of the things that we do is to try to, you know, you can't force anybody to accept what's going to happen, but at least to make it as easy as as you possibly can so that, you know, when the time comes that the person dies,
0: everybody's at least as okay with it as they can be. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. Today, we're talking about end-of-life care and the challenges caregivers, families can face when seeking treatment for their loved ones. In studio with me, Lisa Bessie, a registered nurse, clinical education and quality manager at the Center for Hospice Care Southeast Connecticut, and Tracy Wodach, vice president of clinical and regulatory services at the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. After the break, we'll hear more stories of Connecticut residents who've navigated end-of-life care decisions for their loved ones, and you can join the conversation too. 860 This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshell. Today we're talking about hospice and palliative care. Now these are issues that are not easily uh, able. People don't have trouble talking about this uh, because it's their personal stories. We put out a call on social media to find listeners who want to share their stories. And one of my coworkers at Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network shared her story with the Where We Live team. We thought it was an important one to hear. Joining us now is Sarah DeFilippis, uh, who works in the marketing department at the Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now you told us about your mother and how you navigated um, some end of life care decisions for her. Can you walk us through um, her diagnosis and, and how you went through that journey? Sure. So
7: my mother. This is this is several years ago now. It's about seven years ago, um, and my mother had COPD. So she, you know, didn't have a sort of a traditional terminal diagnosis, or at least, you know, in my experience, it wasn't treated that way although you know she the last year of her life was a trip back and forth between various hospitals and various rehab centers and i think i think we went to at least 6 or 7 between those two things sort of going back and forth because with copd you get infections and you know they're very frail and so it was it was very clear to us to our family that over that period of time she had a terminal illness and and She was in a lot of pain, so and and all those over time, all of those hospitalizations and those trips in the ambulance to these various places caused caused a lot of pain, and we were concerned about how how is this going to end? You know, how do we how do we reduce her pain and make this make this you know less awful for her? So um, I started asking the question, you know, as you know, because you see a lot of doctors in this process, and I didn't have the benefit of. Having her, she had a doctor. She lived in Stanford, and she, when she got really sick, she, we moved her up here. So she, we didn't have the benefit of that relationship. So everyone who came encountered her was new. So everywhere she went, whether it was the hospital or the new rehab center or whatever, I would always ask the question. So when when is it time for hospice? Like I'd like I'd like to to engage that you know as early as possible because I really want her to not be in pain. Because I really didn't see anybody making her better, right? They'd make her stable, but they wouldn't make her better. And um, I, I, there was reticence there, really, on the part of a lot of a lot of doctors. I will say that nurses are not reticent about this. Nurses are are you know sort of champions of hospice, and they will say, "Oh yeah, you definitely want to chase that down." But the doctors themselves were, um, well, you know, you have to make some big decisions about that, and. Well, you know, you, then you're going to have to stop treating her. And it, it, there were the, it was difficult to navigate that. I really um, – so I, uh, my, my strategy for that was to just keep asking. And ultimately, we did get her into hospice. I think that – in retrospect, I think that the, the reason the environment allowed for that, I actually sadly think was an insurance decision. I think they decided that she couldn't be rehabbed anymore. And that opened the door for me again to just ask the question, Okay, so can we take her home? Can we bring her and can we put her in hospice and bring her home? And finally, the answer was yes. And she actually was in hospice for about six weeks. So we had a really long time of, you know, you know, relatively pain free, peaceful time with her.
0: Uh, you made a point to uh, mention that her diagnosis was COPD, and it's not considered terminal. But you felt that it well, was a terminal illness. Did you feel that there was a disconnect there between the the medical providers and I, your family?
7: I wonder now whether when you're when you're dealing with an oncologist, I think it's part of the process. I think oncologists are probably really well trained in this, and there's a process, right? I mean, I may be wrong about that, but. Um, in my case, I think because she wasn't well known to her doctor, and because it was kind of, you know, it's 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 an, a disease that maybe is a little more murky from this standpoint. I mean, I don't know how anybody looking at her couldn't couldn't understand that she was dying. I mean, she was absolutely dying, and for quite a long time. But I think that you know you can always cure an infection, right? So that you have there's a decision that has to be made there about. Are we going to continue to try and cure these infections, which are curable, right? And I think that's where maybe the the relationship was wasn't there.
0: Uh, Tracy uh, Wodach is with us again. Uh, she is with the uh, Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. You were nodding your head a lot while Sarah mm-hmm. was telling us a little of, of her story. Um, You mentioned earlier that in medical schools, uh, death and dying isn't really focused on, right? It's about uh, giving hope and sustaining life. Is that changing in 2017? Are doctors approaching hospice and palliative care differently now?
1: I think we're beginning to see a change in that, yes. Uh, One thing that that happened in 2013, our state legislature legislature passed a a bill to uh, create a palliative care advisory group that's headed by the Department of Public Health, and their focus is really to look at how we're treating people with serious illness and are we offering proper options, et cetera, and they have a report that just came out this year that is trying to move toward building more program development and education at the medical schools and in nursing schools so that we can have uh, focused information about death and dying and having conversations and do more training so they can feel more comfortable. I think a couple of other nods that I was having during during Sarah's uh, presentation was really um, – the The overall diagnoses and, and statistics that show um, what types of patients we care for under hospice, it's only a little over a third that are cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them are, are end-stage serious illnesses like COPD, which is an end-stage respiratory disease, end-stage heart disease, which is the woman that called in. Dementia is is one because that, that is a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of different illnesses, and I think it's really important for us to get the word out to all providers because you never know who will need end-of-life care and when they'll need it. And the importance of having that conversation very early is is so much more uh, positive and effective so that you as a family and and your mom can really um, feel that they're making their own personal choice. The other piece that just got passed this year, we have a statewide most. Process Now, Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, and this is a national campaign in Connecticut. Um, We took on a little bit different flavor. Uh, We call it medical orders, so an APRN, a PA, or a physician can sit down with the family and the patient when they are at an advanced illness level. I would say, you know, frail, serious, advanced stages. Your mom's description would be perfect for the most document. Sit down with the doctor and go over beyond what they may have in their advanced directives. Um, I don't want to go to the hospital anymore, or I'm okay with going to the hospital, but when I go to the hospital, I don't want to go into the intensive care unit. I don't want to be intubated. You know, whatever the choices are, it gets written down in a document signed by both the patient and the doctor, and that document is carried with that patient so that um their wishes can be followed and this is legally binding so it's stronger than what we hear of a living will to be well it's 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 between it's an order between a doctor and a patient so the living will is if you it doesn't have to be live it doesn't have to be legally binding the living will you can do I can do a living will with my husband and I don't need a, a physician i mean a lawyer to sign anything with me it's just a, an advanced directive this is what i want for my life. This is what my husband wants for his. But the medical order for life-sustaining treatment, the MOLS document, actually is a physician's order that gets carried with them so that anywhere they go, it would need to be followed. And it can be changed. If you change your mind, it can be changed. It's not static. You think that would have helped uh, your mother's situation, That would have been incredibly helpful
7: because it it really boils down to like the living will is I don't want to be kept alive, you know, under extraordinary circumstances. Well, what are those? Right. Mm -hmm. And in my mother's case, I ended up having to have a lot of, you know, sort of probing conversations with various doctors at times when, you know, standing in the hallway in the hospital kind of times, which weren't the best times where we were having conversations about, all right, so if, if we say yes or no to compression, for example, to, to, um, um, CPR. CPR, you know, what will that do to her? And it, and you know, finally, someone confessed. Well, it'll probably break her ribs. Well, that was that was an easy decision for me to make, right? Like I understood, practically speaking, what would happen to her, and it wasn't solving the goal. The goal was to not provide more pain <laughs> for us. So you know, we we had to sort of chase those decisions down in a very in a difficult way. And it would have been great to have a piece of paper that said, you know, yes, we want to do this. No, we don't want
0: to do that in in, in practical terms. Sherry is calling from Baltic. Sherry, you're on the show.
8: My wife had COPD, and we fought this disease for many years. And then uh, last Christmas, I had to take her to the hospital for the final time. And when they finally told us that there was nothing more they could do for her, uh, they called in hospice and we brought her home for what they told us she would be alive for uh, four to six months, but she lasted for 11 days. But they didn't give me a suction machine. And this would have been incredibly helpful because um, I couldn't get the mucus out of her throat and... That was the most heart-wrenching part because I'm a nurse and I could have done this myself and that just broke my heart because I was trying to help my wife and I couldn't so you know sometimes they need to and I know they didn't have a lot of time but you know they couldn't be everywhere at one time but if they would have provided me with just that one piece of equipment, I could have made her final, at least her final night, so much more comfortable for her.
0: Well, I'm sorry to hear uh, about this, uh, Sherry, but we thank you for calling us. I wanted to get Lisa Bessie to weigh in with Center for Hospice Care Southeast Connecticut. We've been focusing a lot on on getting our loved ones into this place where they can be uh, comfortable during their end days. But what also are you able to do for families in the grief process? Um, Well, you know, hospice
3: considers patients and families to be one unit. Mm -hmm. So the family is just as important as the patient. So we focus with social workers, with chaplains, um, with volunteers on helping both the patient and the family deal with all the incredible emotional issues that come up as people are dying. The other thing that hospice can do is we also are mandated to provide 13 months of bereavement support, which can be incredibly helpful for people Um, for the family members that are left after the patient dies because it gives them that support that they need, that they're not there by themselves.
0: Uh, Sarah, tell us about your bereavement. Were you able to get support? I don't think I knew that that
7: was available. This is several years ago now too, so I don't know if it was at the time. but It would have helped. Yeah. I mean, every little bit helps, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, understanding the whole experience was where I drew solace, right? And that for me was was the difficult part. There was so little information and you know it would have been really helpful to just have had access to that.
0: We're almost out of time, but I wanted to go back to Tracy Wodach. For our listeners who want more information about Where
1: do they turn? Uh, What can you tell them uh, in the last uh, minute and a half? Well, it's interesting because I personally get many phone calls in our office. every I don't want to say every day, but at least once a week I get a call from a family member looking for help and where do I go, what do I do. Um, Our website, cthealthcareathome.org, cthealthcareathome.org. We have a find services section that helps you just navigate through where you live, what you want. So, if you want hospice services, or you just say nursing because you're not sure what you want, um, you can you can certainly navigate through, and it'll give you the agencies in your area that provide services. You can simply call an agency and ask questions. You can also call our association and ask questions. I'd be happy to, to work with any family on that. Thank you, Tracy Wodach, Vice
0: President of Clinical and Regulatory Services at the Connecticut Association for Healthcare at Home. Also, Lisa Bessie with Center for Hospice Care Southeast Connecticut and CPBN's Sarah DeFilippis. Thank you for coming in, too. Thank you. Uh, we're almost out of time. I want to thank senior producer Lydia Brown, our technical producer Kyone Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, Thanks for listening.